Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that prioritizes the recipient's scheduling experience. If you're okay with sending out a generic link that forces the recipient to jump through a few hoops to meet with you, SavvyCal probably won't be a good fit for you. But if you care about providing an enjoyable experience for anyone booking a meeting with you, they're worth checking out. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Dave Schools. Dave is the first employee and head of marketing at Hopin. This episode's a little bit different because Dave and I actually recorded this on a Twitter space. So the audio quality isn't ideal, but sometimes it's fun just to have the raw audio. And in fact, you might even hear some lightning. Nonetheless, I couldn't let this great content go to waste. So here it is. I wanted to bring him on because Hopin is one of the fastest growing SaaS companies of all time. It's rare to hear the story of that growth from someone who is not the founder, but who was also in marketing. Dave is also just a fascinating guy with a huge breadth of experience. So you'll hear about the companies Dave started before joining Hopin, why he's bullish on Medium and how he created one of the top publications called Entrepreneur's Handbook, and our banter on a whole bunch of relevant topics today. Yep. Hey, Corey. Awesome. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Look at us, man. We're doing it. We're on the spaces. Yeah. Where, where in the world are you, Corey? This is our first time actually ever chatting in person, right? So this is, this is, uh, I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah, so I'm in uh, San Diego, California. Right on. Um, where are you? You're on the East Coast, I yeah. want to say? East Coast, from New York originally, and living in Richmond, Virginia currently. Awesome, man. So we're on like opposite ends, opposite corners. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy how that works. And you, um, you know, it's funny, so, okay. So I think I first started following you and sort of, uh, sort of, you know, got looped in on your journey when you were writing on Medium, like prolifically, and uh, especially when you were documenting your whole. I think your your wife was a, a travel nurse, and you guys were like doing so much traveling around the U.S. and living in different cities, like every couple months, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, once once upon a time, Medium had a uh, feature called Series. I don't know if, yeah. if if folks remember that, but it was kind of like a mobile first way to digest content and keep the com like to keep the story going where you'd write a story but then update it as as the story developed so i was like oh perfect like this is the the perfect medium for uh this adventure with my my wife who who was a travel nurse and we we did that we did that for 18 months and i as a writer at the time and kind of independent startup consultant followed her uh followed her around and uh just documented our experiences as we moved to different cities so we we set off from uh washington dc we sold uh 66 percent of our 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 belongings and then we, we or gave it away packed it into a, a honda crv including our two cats and then set off across the country to our first station which was in phoenix uh arizona and how long did you guys, how long were you on the road and how many cities did you end up uh, being in? We went, we were on the road for 18 months, roughly, and wow. five cities. We did Phoenix, then we went to Salt Lake City, then uh, San Francisco. We were, lived in San Mateo uh, for three months, and then randomly to Salisbury, Maryland, and then Richmond, Virginia. And then that's where we uh, bought a house and uh, had a baby and put some roots down. 
congrats. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's uh, lots of stories, lots of people, great experience. I highly, re- if anyone has the opportunity to do travel nursing, highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or to have a partner who does travel nursing and they get to reap all the benefits without him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, I feel like it's a really cool sort of model for traveling because there's a whole, you know, there was like digital nomading and then obviously when COVID hit and like everyone wanted to, you know, uh, either travel somewhere where they would, you know, sort of have like a nice place to like live and, and work from home or, you know, just sort of like did it, you know, indiscriminately maybe they went on the road with the RV or something. But um, I think the hard part about doing the whole digital nomad thing is, I can't speak from experience, it's just sort of what I was observed, is that if you're always moving around like every couple of weeks or like every other week, um, man, that's, that's like a, like traveling's exhausting. I don't know how you do that sustainably. Um, but if you stay there for like, you know, two or three months, then, um, it feels like it's one kind of easier, but two, you get to actually like live like the locals and actually, um, I don't know, have fun, enjoy the city, like enjoy sure. where you are. Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, balance that you strike when you're, when you move every three months where it's, it's, uh, you know, how, how quickly can you build community around you when you move to a new place? And then uh, part of me enjoyed enjoyed the experience of moving to a new place every three months because it was like reinventing and improving myself, like an opportunity to just hit reset and and start over and, and kind of build build again. But then at the same time, like I missed the, the friendships and the people that we met, like in Phoenix and Salt Lake City, the, the nature, the community, like... Yeah, there's there's no uh, physical roots that we can put down in in a city, um, but then you know everything moves kind of on to digital, and then you have relationships uh, over the web that stick with you wherever wherever you are, and that seems to be where the where the future is headed. Mm, right. Yeah. So what were you actually doing? I'm trying to remember now, like what I was reading about when you were doing the whole you know documentary journey. You're writing a whole bunch on Medium. Um, was it mostly you, you mentioned like uh, you know, obviously medium, that's what we were writing on the sort of uh, doing independent, you know, consulting for, for marketing. Um, but like, what were like the actual concrete things you were doing during that time? How'd that change over time as well? Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, so I quit my job in, uh, March, 2017. I was at a, a digital design development agency in, in DC and, uh, just got tired of kind of doing the biz dev role. And uh, that's when my, my publication on Medium started to gain traction. And so I quit. I quit my job. Uh, we did the travel nursing gig. And so what I spent my time on was I, I describe myself as a multi-project entrepreneur. I think a lot of people who hear this, yourself included, like get that. Like you're working on like five different projects uh, and LLCs and websites at the same time. Um, so mine were Entrepreneur's Handbook. Uh, that was on Medium. It's a Medium publication. It has 200,000 followers now. It's in the top 25 on Medium. And I've just I've been writing on Medium since the beginning in 2016 when they opened up the platform. And uh, that's really where my I'd say my career was kick-started, was thanks to Medium. So I have a lot a lot to say on, on Medium.com if you want to go there. Um, it's, yeah, actually, I do. It, it's been brilliant. That, uh, then Party Cues is a conversation starter app that my co-founder and I created. It's the simplest app for high quality questions to keep the conversation going. And the there's over 2,000 hand-picked questions in the app. Uh, so it's partycues.com. It's, we get about 10,000 monthly active users. Um, 
There's no ads. There's no comments. It's literally just a tool. It's kind of like table topics. Have you seen that card deck game where it's like, here's a here's an icebreaker? It's yeah, yeah. Actually, I think my mom just gave me one for my birthday. Oh, really? <laughs> it's Funny, funny story. Uh, Table Topics was actually in conversations with with my partner and I about uh, a deal with Party Cues. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of the digital version of that. So you don't have to have a card deck in your pocket. Uh, right. The most popular category is date night. Uh, just fun fact. Yeah. So Entrepreneur's Handbook, Party Cues. Uh, then I had a handful of uh, tech startups that I consulted for. Did a lot of ghostwriting for for CEOs. Um, helped with with marketing um, for a smart lock uh, product, uh, an insure tech startup. There was uh, a venture philanthropy nonprofit that I that I uh, wrote for, and um, then I wrote a book. I also wrote a novel. So keeping going with the multi project entrepreneur thing, I also wrote a, a fiction novel. Oh so self published that. It's called Runaway Millionaire. Um, oh, that's right, man. That's that's fascinating. Really. Um I can I can resonate with that though. I mean, I feel like I always have a, a new idea every other week and something I want to work on. And it's one of those things I think when you're a little bit more entrepreneurial, like it's not even I don't know. It's, uh, you just want to see these things like exist and like be in the world and like it's just exciting, right? And so it's hard to like just stay focused on one thing because you can't like contain your excitement for all these different ideas that you have. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what what your take on it is. There's there's kind of that that question of. Is, should should you have so much on your plate or should you have one thing? Is focus the number one, you know, Im- important aim or should you work on multiple projects at the same time? People have differing opinions on that. Mine is that the more projects you have, the more they can start to converge and overlap and then like pool together and then something will click and then there'll be an inflection point in one of those, and then that's the one that you fo- you pull the trigger on, and you go all in on, and that was actually uh, what happened with with Hoppin. It was uh, it was the one I, because when I first met Johnny, uh, founder and CEO of Hoppin, uh, but as he was working on the MVP, and he before I joined the company, he would ask me, you know, what do you see yourself doing down the road, like in in a couple of years, and I was like, I'm I'm waiting for that one project, that one startup, the one initiative that I can jump in with two feet on. And, and dedicate like 100% of my focus towards. And it turned out that that is very much what Hoppin became. He was like, great, I'll, I'll do that for you. I can, uh, I can, I can make that happen. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, for, I mean, for me, um, man, it's a struggle. I don't know if there's like a right or wrong answer. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely hard. I think one of the things I've found is um, historically what's, what's worked. I can't say it like... There's like a foolproof method to it, but what's worked is kind of working in sprints. So if I want to see something happen, I want to work on multiple things. Like uh, anytime that I will just like slowly chip away at a whole bunch of things at the same time, I feel like I make like no progress. Mm-hmm. And like there's nothing, at least there's nothing to show for it, right? Like maybe you are making progress, but it's just like there's nothing to show for it. So it feels even slower. Whereas uh, there's been a few times where I'd really work in sprints. I would just like go heads deep. Uh, you know, two feet in into like one thing at a time. Maybe it's been like a month or two months just completely focused on one thing. And then I'd see that thing through to fruition or I would just kind of like, you know, give it a, a good long sprint. And then I would kind of like, put, you know, let my foot on the gas pedal, you know, redirect my focus to something else. 
but at least I had something to show for after a month or two, right? Yeah. Um, so like when I created uh, the two courses that I created, Refaction Growth and Monster Marketing, those were both like 30-day, like literally sprints, just like creating the content, recording. It was, I mean, with a lot, lots of sleepless nights. Um, and man, I was super, super productive. Uh, and then I just kind of like let go. I just, you know, redirected my focus to, well, the next course or like the next thing that I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, but ultimately there's like, you know how people always talk about like, oh, like multitasking isn't a thing. Like you can really only like have focus on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. So you're like really multitasking is like switching your focus between things. I kind of feel the same way about having multiple projects going at the same time. Like you really not really don't have multiple things going at the same time. You're just like rapidly switching your focus and splitting your time between them. Totally. And there's, there's gotta be like a, like a, a point of diminishing returns where you know if you have over like three things that you work on at the same time like you start to really lose some productivity and like feel overwhelmed and um uh, or at least like i don't know the way that you split them up like you can't do them all equally you know you might have to work in some sprints and let something go for a while to work on something else for a while while you get that up off the ground or given the attention needs so um i don't know that that's the way that i've been thinking about it yeah for sure yeah what well, it, it when you're talking, it, it reminds it reminds me of a, a tough question that I asked myself. I'm curious what, what everyone's thoughts are, Corey, yours especially, on how do you know when to pull the plug on a project? Like your context switching and like working on, on a bunch of promising, you know, kind of chasing leads or promising projects. But at what point do you deem something, especially if there's mild success, at what point do you say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to pull the plug on this? And I, I have a story... Uh, where I encountered this with, uh, with Entrepreneur's Handbook on Medium, I launched a membership business called Brew Projects, and it was an $8 a month uh, kind of entrepreneur uh, mastermind group where we did weekly calls and private you know, Slack community, and we, we kept each other accountable. You know, we're listeners for, for our ideas and inspired each other, and kind of like an accountability group for being productive on your entrepreneurial ideas to turn ideas into income was kind of the purpose of the group and it got up to 30 people and but it but it turned out uh after four months roughly especially when one of the the heavyweights of the group told me like hey dave i'm i'm out like i thought i I joined this group to be uh kind of mentored and to like swim among the sharks but but i'm a shark and uh so this isn't working and that that was a blow to me. That was like, oh, like this isn't, this isn't working out. So, ended up uh, making the decision to pull the plug on Brew Projects and kind of buckle down on the editorial side of Entrepreneur's Handbook. Um, but it's it's a tough decision. Like, there's that moment where it's like you just grind through and keep scaling because uh, maybe it could have, you know, if there were a thousand members, eight bucks a month, you know, then then you're onto something as far as a business, but. I think there are some business model issues and one person maintaining a community like membership business is uh, is a lot. Um, but that did set the stage for uh, opening up the door for hopping and kind of like learning from what from that experience. I saw the need and the opportunity for something like hopping to come in. And that's that's actually how it how it came to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things that like kills me inside because I'm the I'm always like the the both ends type of person like I want to have my cake and, and eat it too and so to like really pull the plug on something is like the hardest thing for me because I'm like no like 
I'll just like leave it for a while or I'll just, you know, put in a couple of hours here and there just to like see that through and, um, and just to keep it alive. But, uh, I think that there's, you know, it's kind of like this life cycle for projects and maybe like, I don't know, there's this whole like, listen to your gut and listen to your heart kind of stuff that it's maybe a little bit misdirected, but sometimes I feel like, yeah, I feel like most of us know the answer. We just like, don't want to hear it. Um, and so yeah. whatever you're feeling like, that's, that's usually what like the right thing to do is maybe I should like, well, going to okay, like you probably should, if you're even like considering that, you know, give it some time, give it a while, but that's probably the right answer. Like that's the way that you're leaning anyways. Um, but there has been other instances where, for example, um, I had this job board, Hey Marketers, uh, that was sort of mildly successful. I felt like there was huge potential for it. Yeah. Um, I had been working on it for over a year. And I hadn't done, you know, crazy revenue, but like, th- there was definitely like those positive indicators of like, oh wow, like people are coming back to the site regularly, and like, oh, job posters are posting multiple jobs, and they're coming back six months later, posting a new job, and um, like all the kind of right things that were starting to rank, you know, good in, in Google for a few keywords, and I feel like the strategy was all there. It's just I didn't have the the time or the focus or the energy to really give it what it needed. So I was actually contemplating shutting it down and I was talking with my wife about it and she's like, well, why don't you just sell it? I was like, well, I don't want to like sell it and then like lose all the upside. And, um, uh, and like no one will buy it. Like it's too small. There's, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know like how to price it or evaluate it. And, and, um, and then I was like, so we kind of like ended that conversation. I was like, oh, why don't I just post on Twitter about it? And um, just like sort of surface the idea of me maybe selling it. And so I posted on Twitter, and it was kind of like an indirect way, in hindsight, like pretty genius, but uh, it wasn't purposeful at all. But I basically just asked, like, hey, what would you value this thing if you had to? Um, like, I'm not saying, like, I'm selling it, but just saying, like, what would you value it at? And then, like, I got this flood of people, like 25 people who were like, oh, are you interested in buying it like, or selling it? Like, I'll buy it, and, like, I would love to put it in a project. Like, you would hop on a call. Like, here's all my ideas. And pretty soon after that, I had like a bidding war for people who. That's amazing. And yeah, and I was like, oh wow, like I just accidentally put myself in this fantastic position, and ended up selling the majority stake. So at first, like most people were just interested in buying the whole thing, just doing kind of like all cash. Uh, and then one guy came through, who uh, so it's Rich Thornett. He's the founder, CEO of or a uh, previous CEO of uh, Dribble, super successful job board and like whole like design site. He had sold it, um, and he was like, hey, so I'm like, this is so weird because I'm building out like, this family of job boards and building out job board tech, and I've been thinking about acquiring kind of some niche job boards to like add to the portfolio, and then like I just started following you, and then like the next day, you're like, hey, like, I'm maybe thinking about selling this thing, so he's like, I just felt like it's meant to be, and so we figured out this really cool structure where um, I'm basically still like in my but he's completely 100% in the driver's seat um, and gets to kind of like fulfill the vision that I originally set out. Um, so it's that kind of stuff too where like maybe you don't even need to pull the plug. Like maybe there's just like an alternative kind of exit from that project where you can hand it over to someone else, sell it, um, make it for free to live on without you. I don't know, open source. Like there's a lot of different options out there. Seriously. And sorry if you heard that, that loud noise. That was actually a... A thunderbolt, or I just saw a huge crackle of lightning and then thunder outside my house. It's super it's loud. If it was raining, I heard like a little bit of trickles uh, at some point. Yeah. Uh, dude, congratulations. That's amazing. That's a, that's an awesome story. So you, 
you sold it. I mean, it was a great brand. I checked out the site and I, and I was hiring, you know, I hired nine people at, at Hoppin and was definitely, uh, mm-hmm. checking out, uh, your site to, to put some postings. I think we, I reached out to you on that actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, Rich has done a fantastic job. He basically, like, I, I'm not a technical person. I can't program or code or really even design. I'm a really terrible designer. Um, so I had to kind of stitch it together with a bunch of no-code tools like Webflow and Typeform and, um, you know, just kind of, like, hacked it together. And it worked, but, you know, it wasn't pretty, and it was sort of reaching, like, its limits on what it could do if it really wanted to uh, do some, like, cool stuff. And um, so Rich has just like completely replaced all that with his own kind of proprietary stuff. And he's also invested a lot into, you know, getting good design and really putting a lot of thought into it. And it's fantastic. I think that's one of the really cool parts about it is that now we can look at it and like be really proud of it because I was a small part of, you know, starting it and getting it off the ground. But now like someone else gets to fulfill the vision and like, but I still get to be, you know, be, be a part of that and be proud of it. Yeah. That's amazing. We, um, on the Hoppin side, this earlier in uh, January this year, we acquired StreamYard, um, a live streaming oh, right. software. And our, this, I know you have a, you have a lot of marketers following you. Um, maybe that's another conversation for another day. But live streaming is is the future of community engagement. Like after, I, tell me what you think of this, because because I've been thinking about content marketing. We always say that content is king, right? But then, if I'm a publication and I'm publishing content regularly. And if people are reading it and engaging with that content and coming back, then as a result, like automatically community starts to form, right? Like people start talking about the content that you've put out. So, so kind of like the evolution of, of content marketing is community engagement. Assuming that you've, you've put together a powerful content marketing engine, what's next? Um, that's where I think community is the next big frontier for marketers that, that not a lot of people have figured out. Because community, I mean, frankly, once community scales, it gets a little messy, right? I mean, community is real people. Uh, yeah, right. And when you put, when you when everybody comes together and it's like an open forum, I mean, then you have the, the social network problem. But then for a business, like as marketers for brands, and you have that the content marketing engine set up, and then you have your community, what do you do next? Like, that's that's the question. And I think a lot of a lot of brands have come to that point, and so what my proposition is is live streaming is an, is the most authentic way to tell stories. The most and this comes from Salesforce. I was talking to uh, one of their community marketers at, at Salesforce, and she said that live streaming does better than overly scripted or like professionally produced, like rehearsed video production. Because live streaming has that that authentic authenticity, like that real human touch, and that works well for community, like with people who are familiar with their brand, they just want to kind of see the human side of, of the brand, and live streaming is a, a powerful tool for that. Whether it's to social channels or a Facebook group, or like it could be a hopping event or a closed environment. Um, but what do you think of live streaming? And kind of, what do you think of community engagement and kind of the future of content? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought it up. I think it's um, it's an interesting kind of topic because obviously community is pretty like hot right now, and it's sort of like one of the next things that 
us like B2B, at least like, you know, for me and my circle, like us B2B marketers uh, and SaaS marketers to kind of like feast our eyes on and start thinking about and looking at it. Upside Swipe Files, which is the uh, online community as well. And so I've sort of dipped my toes into that fairly recently. And, um, you know, I always think about uh, like who's on the cutting edge for uh, like the internet and like, um, I don't like business or just like who is on the cutting edge for like media and communication and just like, you know, right there, who's like innovating the most. Elon and Musk. In, the, yeah, right. the Doge King. Uh, easy, easy question, right? <laughs> the uh, crypto king. Um, and and normally, what you find is that it's people who are like really on like the outskirts and like kind of these heavy users of the internet. And that's more recently been like creators, right? So I think of like Twitch streamers and mm-hmm. like YouTubers and um, uh, uh, a lot of like writers or bloggers. Like there's been all sorts of, um, uh, I guess, like different evolutions and forms of like what this person looks like depending on like which decade or which time frame we look at and it's like you know uh, at one point it was like podcasters at another point it was uh, bloggers at another point it was youtubers like now I feel like it's a lot of um, like streamers and uh, people who are doing a lot of like live interaction kind of stuff so I agree I feel like live stream is definitely on like the frontier cutting edge of like engagement and content for uh, for any sort of you know marketing, if you want to call it that, communication, uh, just like engaging with your audience. Um, I think the really difficult part is, like you said, that it's one, it's it's uh, it's synchronous, right? So like you have to get everyone together live, um, and it's supposed to be more authentic. Right? It's hard to like not script things as much, and um, I think especially for brands, it becomes really really interesting because like I think for for live streaming and for a lot of these more like authentic ways of communicating with people what you really need is personalities and it's hard to like build up or acquire or like um gain personalities in a company i mean it's really easy to do that as an individual right because it's just like oh like i'm some like quirky dude who likes playing call of duty like watch me stream it and then like he gains a following because of who he is but you can't really do that within a company setting unless you like recruit those people or if they already have some sort of following and you manage to, you know, work out some sort of deal or I don't know. I think that's what can be one of the one of the big parts is like who's the person at the end at the other at the other end of the stream and does your audience care about them? Because if not, then you have to get them to care about them. You have to build a personality, um, and that can be pretty pretty difficult to do. Yeah, totally. The um so that's that you know you're talking about personality being the key to, to live streaming I agree there's a influencer marketing I think is the next you know like that's part and parcel to to live streaming and finding those influencers in your space those those creators with large followings who can be you know brand allies and kind of aligned with with the brand and then um, that's what we do at, at StreamYard. We have we have some influencers who are just power, you know, especially YouTubers, fantastic personalities, great speakers, and um, they use StreamYard, and then they just mention that uh, to their their following. So it's kind of like context. It's almost like it's like the the live version of what Unsplash is trying to innovate on, in uh, with ads, where it's like contextual ads, ads that don't feel like ads. You know, it's that's almost like. Influencer marketing and, and brand, um, uh-huh. but yeah, the, I, I think there's 
there's this there's this whole theme of like how do we how do we blend like business and like uh, creators or like you know media personalities and like the people who are innovating the most and like doing the best usually have like both of those components where obviously they have a really strong like uh, business model and adoption and they have a great product but then like if you also pair that with like these huge you know influencers or personalities or endorsements of some kind then that's where you really you know start to reach the masses and you also build some sort of moat around it um you know i think of like nike with michael jordan right it's just like they have they forever have like the legend of, of basketball like the most influential person of all time possibly they also have lebron you know it's like yeah not really fair at this point but um like that's a huge distribution moat where now they not only have the product, but they also have like the personality, the the audience. They have this built-in uh, legacy for a long time, and um, and for for creators, like uh, actually, so I was just talking with uh, Ben Shapiro, not the um, political personality, but um, <laughs> the host of the Martech podcast, and uh, uh, one of the top marketing podcasts, and he just joined the HubSpot podcast network. I think HubSpot is really smart, and they're doing some interesting yeah. things. And uh, the more that we talked about it, the more I realized that I think I kind of, I'm talking with Kieran Flanagan, their, their VP, uh, pretty soon, but I think really what they're getting at is that they're they're finding this kind of win-win mutual sweet spot where they don't have to employ people and personalities to do marketing for them. Uh, they also don't just have to um, like just do like a straight up affiliate kind of relationship or just like, you know, just like advertising dollars. It's like somewhere in between where there's like a long-term contract, there's like upside, there's a lot of like, you know, interesting collaboration and exclusivity. And um, and that really feels like really good. So he joined the, the network and basically what that means is that like HubSpot is kind of like the premier sponsor, but they also are a collaborator on the content. And it's like a long-term relationship rather than just like, you know, them buying a couple of ad slots and like being promoted that day. It's like, now HubSpot gets the benefit of sort of like the Martech podcast is theirs to a certain degree. Like they almost have equity in it, um, but it's more like attention equity. Uh, but they, don't, they didn't really have to pay for it, and they also don't have to employ anyone for it. It's like, oh, that's a great deal for HubSpot and for you know, Ben or whoever the creator is. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a trend we're seeing, right, with SaaS companies buying media companies. There's some more thunder for you. Uh, but yeah, with, with HubSpot buying the hustle, uh, super interesting. You know, once once that happened, I was I was, I was watching. I subscribed to the hustle, and it's it's kind of like what's how's this going to change or like is there going to be any uh, disruption here? Because uh, it's similar with Hoppin when Hoppin bought Streamyard or or Topi and 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 the other companies that we bought. It's like how do you integrate uh, without losing kind of what's worked? And it's been interesting with with the hustle that it looks like they just shut off ads pretty much like that's the only difference it's and then like HubSpot's kind of mentioned throughout the my first million podcast uh and then just you being you know taking up the real estate in the newsletter but other than that it remains true and they've uh it seems like the hustle is continuing like it like it has so it's definitely a, a trend and we're probably going to see more media companies like distribution channels bought up you know more more and more by, by SaaS companies. Yeah, yeah. I've had, um, I've, I've had it in my Twitter graphs for a long time. Uh, I sort of tweeted about it indirectly a couple times, but I had this running thesis of like, you know, the next 
uh, like the greatest marketing departments look like media companies. And um, I think that's true, like anecdotally, it's kind of like a fun, like yeah. quippy kind of saying. Um, but I think in practice, that actually isn't very good or very, very smart. Because what I was thinking was like, oh, if I was, um, if I was HubSpot, for example, you know, they, they could have gone and started something like the hustle they could have started this whole like media arm where it's basically like a different you know distinct brand um different whole different team whole different even like business model where they monetize in different ways uh potentially right because they might not be able to like directly attribute the the roi you know given back to like a crm sale for example um and uh but then i think the problem becomes that once someone figures out that it's something by hubspot and it kind of feels like a bait and switch and it sort of feels a little bit slimy like you you can tricked a little bit and i don't know if that's completely true that's just kind of like the the ideas that are flowing and flowing around my head but there's like this interesting balance between you know partnering with media companies and creators and, and personalities versus like owning them outright directly um, not to say that anything that's why it's done with the hustle is bad i just seen like there's a really i think they've actually done really really well uh, and it's actually smart that they acquired it instead of starting from the beginning because then it's a much more sort of symbiotic relationship. Yeah. But um, but I think that all that to say that the future is more in collaborating with media companies and creators rather than like creating media companies and creators. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's interesting that you know another example is um, Amazon or Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, and. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't think, I don't know if you can, I, I can't think of an example where it's like, oh, here is clearly Amazon's influence into the Washington Post. I, I don't read it, you know, every day. Uh, but, you know, talk about kind of being behind the scenes and remain, like letting that, that media entity remain, you know, its own. Uh, I just, I wonder what's going on behind, behind the scenes. Uh, I think there's probably doesn't Jeff Bezos there's a quote attributed to him about something like thinking two quarters ahead and that's I think that's when it comes to M&A deals just thinking two quarters ahead like with StreamYard for example we're, we're rolling out we're introducing B2B uh, marketing sales we're standing up the B2B marketing sales funnel on the StreamYard side and StreamYard's a, a B2C a successful B2C company so then you have kind of like, and this is an interview question that I like to ask marketers. It's like when you have B2B and B2C uh, models set up for your business, how do they not compete or conflict with each other? And, or do they? Because someone who's buying, you know, on the B2B side, it's larger deals. It's, it's whale hunting. It's longer close cycles. It's, you know, white papers, gated content, lead gen, demand gen, you know, events. And then on the B2C side, that's where it's more like influencers, live streaming, you know, like uh, emotional, edgy films, you know, and, and kind of like uh, sponsoring Michael Jordan, you know, that kind of those deals where it's, yeah. it's brand building and tough to tie to, 
you know, an ROI, we're on the B2B side, it's like, how many leads did this marketing effort generate? And then that's how we measure success. Um, but it's interesting when you have a business that does both. And so I'm going through that on the StreamYard side now where we're introducing the B2B side to a B2B, B2C primary, primarily, uh, primarily business. Um, curious if, you, if you've gone through that or if, if you've seen that uh, before. Yeah, I don't know. I think um, uh, part of me wants to say, like, it's kind of this trope at this point of, like, you know, we're all just selling to humans, and it's, it's P2P, it's not P2P or B2C. Um, but there's some, like, there's some, some differences and some distinct nuances between them and how you sell. Um, part of me wants to say that uh, it's not so much, like, B2B versus B2C. It's more, like, is it product-led growth or is it more like sales-led growth like just what's like the, the acquisition funnel look like is it you know are people like discovering it organically and like you know you have this low kind of entry-level price point that you need to use channels like influencers and seo and and ads or is it like you're selling to these you know vps or cmos or whoever it is and you really just have to like you know work your way up the corporate ladder through like emails and you need someone there to act as like a project manager and a rapport builder and someone to sort of do some account-based selling or marketing, however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I don't personally have a lot of experience there. So those are just kind of my, my noodling thoughts. I think that's, that's dead on. That, that one thing we're learning on the StreamYard side is that when you do have a B2C audience and you're introducing B2B, instead of like, sh- like jarringly shift the business, to, and disrupt like the consumer engine that's working. You use product an- analytics, PLG, and go, you know, like lead scoring to be targeted, almost like very focused on, on specific uh, ICPs. Uh, and then that's, that's where it's like this behind the scenes, you know, revenue, uh, revenue engine that's, that's not, uh, you know, kind of what you see at, at, at the beginning. Twitter is a good example, consumer business, but then you have this separate, almost brand Twitter business that will reach out, you know, like when certain triggers, whether it's firmographic, behavioral, when that, when the mechanism, the lead scoring mechanism is triggered, then Twitter business reaches out like, Hey, take over Twitter for a day. And then that's, you know, that's whale hunting amongst a sea of, of minnows. Yeah. Right. Right. Instead of just like blasting all the time, they're sort of, uh, they're very like timely and, um, you know, sort of harpoon fishing instead of net fishing, if you will. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, hey, well, uh, you know, time is flying by, but I also want to make sure that I ask you about Medium, because you said you had a lot of thoughts around that, and I'm also just personally curious because um, Medium has, like, gone through all sorts of ups and downs and changes and, like, complete pivots and stuff like that around their business model, and you've been with them sort of since the beginning. I've also been a, a very happy and and thankful contributor to the Entrepreneur Handbook, and so I appreciate that. I want to say thanks personally. Um, but uh, tell me about Medium. Like, you're, I don't know, just like a brain dump on thoughts, experiences, stories, uh, where it's headed, how you use it, what it's been like for you. For sure. I, Medium is the grand experiment of Ev Williams, you could say, where just like, what is a, what is a media company business model look like without ads? And... Uh, that's a difficult nut to crack. So it's a membership business that's consumer. Um, but then you have these three bodies. You have readers, writers, 
and then publication owners like editors and medium saw once they gained traction had 400 million uh visitors a month coming to their site readers high quality you know this this great content coming uh being channeled into these you know small smaller communities these publications like entrepreneur's handbook uh then you have like what does quality look like people are paying you five bucks a month to have quality reads how do you maintain that quality so i think there's a strategic decision inside medium two years ago where it's like Okay, we're, we're going to be less an open platform and hire our own editorial staff so that we can ensure we're pumping out content that's, you know, New York Times quality. And there is a, and I, don't, I think that backfired in the end. We saw the exodus of the editorial staff uh, earlier this year. And I think that came from Medium as a platform making the decision that they know what quality looks like as opposed to le- leaving it to the organic user and listening to kind of like, what are we seeing on our platform that, that works uh, for high quality content and also uh, people feeling at home and kind of finding community on Medium. And the answer wasn't, wasn't let's, let's make our own editorial publications because that ended up uh, being kind of almost disruptive and more of a competition with their own users. Sorry if you hear, uh, rain it's really coming down here so yeah the the future is is i think they're leaning more into writers now instead of uh publications are there they help writers feel at home like give a place for work to be published but uh you know as a as an indie pub owner on medium it's been a roller coaster for sure with like which way are they yanking us this quarter uh but Medium is, is still, in my mind, the best place to write on the internet. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it to, to everyone who wants to kind of dip their toes in, start dabbling, and, and really find their voice. Uh, Medium's the best place to sharpen to sharpen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the interesting part about Medium, and what originally drew me in the first place, was uh, there was this really like curated experience where, whereas before, like, the way that you discovered content was very like random and accidental. You'd just be like scrolling through Twitter or Googling something and then it's like, oh, a great piece of content. And then like you go to Medium and then there was like this treasure trove of <clears throat> a whole bunch of uh, you know amazing content just right in front of you all at once. Yeah, it's like impossible to, I, I always say I never have enough time to read all that's on Medium. There's so much good stuff there. Um, yeah, it was huge. And then the the interesting part about it, and I'd love to hear your experience again as one of the one of the indie sort of uh, publications who's been with them for a long time, is that the business model changes so often uh, in so many different ways that uh, the incentives, like there, so early on, as as a writer, there's this great opportunity. Like with every new platform, there's this arbitrage opportunity where there's way more demand that there is supply so if you're one of the suppliers aka one of the writers then you get this outsized distribution and discovery and sort of build this network and audience really quickly that we see we see people uh doing tiktok right more recently and, yeah. um, and there's you know it's the same life cycle for every sort of platform that you build on but then eventually it becomes you know the supply kind of comes up to the demand and everyone their mom starts writing on medium and maybe also the quality goes down and you mix in that uh, some of the some business model changes and um, like 
what what is the opportunity for medium today? Is it more of like a monetary, like it's just an easy way to uh, to monetize a publication? Is it still the discovery component, or like has that changed, um, or is it just like a friendly place to get started, like instead of powering up a you know WordPress WordPress blog or something else like that? Yeah, I'd say it's Medium's the the place for individuals at the moment. Um, I don't know I don't know if I'd recommend businesses to start up a publication on on medium but as a wow that's that's some considerable thunder <laughs> um and so medium being good for individuals so if you're a writer and this is where you have like how does a corporation become human again it's where you have your people start writing like as a representative of the brand um that's where i think it's the opportunity lies is like start getting your team to express thought leadership and medium's a great place uh, to reach to reach smart people like that's one of the like interesting things about medium is like that's it and twitter too i'd say is like there's a lot of smart people here so what do you do when you have 400 million people coming to your site every month to read and converse and engage like what's next and one theory for like, if I were to just posit like, what's the future of medium look like? I think there's something around getting out of the way as a platform and letting users giving and focusing on features like that membership that they have. I think they should start. Th they should think about tiers where they create more memberships with features that allow their creators, their publications, their users to create content that's at the same level of quality, but in new forms on, on medium. I think that's, I think people would pay, would pay for that. And so I think like video, audio, uh, and exploring kind of what that, what that looks like. And you can already see the shift a little bit in what medium just rolled out with, with the branding features, like your page is, is more customizable now you can, and they went back to uh, custom domain names as well, because they removed, oh, really? they removed those, uh, kind of in the middle. Um. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's pretty. That's pretty interesting. Uh, I had a question on the tip of my tongue, and then, of course, now it's, it's escaped me. Uh, oh, the, I was going to say one of the. I'm just one. I'm surprised that like Medium has been able to like sustain itself through all these like crazy cycles and changes and, and pivots. Uh, like hats off to them and just them that they're like still alive and still you know one of the most popular websites in the world. Because uh, that's not easy. <laughs> Very easy to get dethroned or like lose momentum. Um, but two, I was really, really shocked as I've sort of been dipping my toes in this whole crypto world and DeFi world that like everyone in the crypto space is on Medium and uses Medium. And like that's where you'll see all the like, you know, that's where they like have their blog and that's where they like post announcements or that's where they introduce, you know, the new project. And I, don't, I can't really put my finger on why, but that's kind of like a good indicator to me again, like, Thinking back to like who are the, the innovators and the people on the on the cutting edge of the internet and of an industry, crypto and DeFi people are obviously there. Like those are the types of people that are just thinking about you know what's new, what's next, like where are they going to be and hang out. And so it was like surprising and sort of like a like positive sign that there are a lot of more medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good playbook. You know, if like medium, I'd, I'd say is one of the best places to kickstart a community around a specific topic. Because like through the engine, the recommendation engine that they've built in, distribution like through automated email digests that are targeted, 
it's a if and if you don't have your own website because sometimes when you're writing your own website you know it feels like you're just throwing something out there that nobody reads medium yeah. solves that pain point uh, and people like kind of rally around it there's a nice like kind of smooth in, not integration but transition between Twitter and medium a good relationship there um, so it's got I used to say in the early days like yeah, you know Twitter Twitter short form mediums long form similar it's just long form uh, but the similar kind of conversational style exists there. Uh, so yeah, and then you have like all sorts of communities like crypto, DeFi, uh, entrepreneurship, like, you know, cooking, you have media, you have uh, career advice, you know, like the the list is, is endless for like, you can find it all on, on Medium. Yeah, yeah. Um. I'd also, I'd also be remiss if I didn't ask you about Hopin. So I'd love to, I mean, just more to like satiate my own personal curiosity on, you know, what's it been like to be sort of ground floor, bottoms up, and uh, I think maybe, I guess technically like the fastest growing startup of all time, and you guys have had just an insane trajectory, uh, given how, how short actually it's really like been in business um, officially. Um, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, you talked with Johnny um, back when, still like the MVP stage uh, so why did you end up joining sort of what did you do what do you do now like you know what's it been like at Hopin yeah for sure I joined at the beginning because I was I was kind of coming off of that that failed membership business with Entrepreneur's Handbook that we were talking about earlier in this in the conversation and I was kind of wondering like okay I've got these readers I've got this community I've got followers how do I bring them together like how do I monetize this and those are the questions I, were, I was wrestling with. I get connected to Johnny through uh, someone that I interviewed uh, on, uh, on Entrepreneur's Handbook. He sets up this introduction, chat with Johnny. Johnny shows me the platform he's working on, which primarily focused on this networking tools, almost like chat roulette, you know, for prof- prof- professionals. And it, I kept, you know, we kept chatting with Johnny and he'd build more features and more features. And we developed this friendship and then uh, I ran an event, one of the first events ever on uh, Hopin, kind of like as a as an early customer, and I sent two emails to to the my following on Medium, and I said, "Hey, we're doing this event. It's a pitch meetup. Come practice your pitches. Amazon Web Services bringing their startup team to do some training. We got a VC who's going to speak, and uh, there's networking, and uh, group conversations, and come come on out and." Uh, I had like, like tiered pricing, made a couple thousand bucks, and the event happens, and people loved the networking, the fact that they could meet other people from around the world at an event. They loved the sessions, like the thought leadership from the speakers, and the live kind of like Q&A. It felt just like a physical event, they said. And then that's where it all, it all kind of clicked for me. I was like, this is the future of, of events, and not just events, but like the future of community engagement. And, uh, and even more than that, um, where it's like we get the benefit of events, the monetization of a large following, and bringing people together, and that's when magic happens, is when people come together, and it all happens on this platform, and it's just starting. This was all pre-pandemic as well, too, so pan- coronavirus is n- not even a thing, you know, like back in mid-2019. Uh, right. So, yeah, quit quit all my stuff and jumped in with two feet uh, with Johnny September 2019 and 
started to grind. And it's, now it's, uh, we're at close to 600 people. So less than two years Jeez. later, we're went from two and some contractors to 600 people. We're in 40 countries, fully remote company, no office. And it's gone from, you know, early stage startup to scale up to like corporation. We still have a long way to go. We have pretty ambitious uh, path forward. Uh, Johnny's an exceptional uh, human being. The drive and the vision that, that he has uh, is pretty rare. So it, if you look at Hoppin's path of zero to 100 million ARR, you know, relative to other startups, that graph is more vertical than, than other rapid growth companies like Slack, um, who I think hit 100 million ARR in three years, and we're looking like we're going to do that in two years. And then that's where that, that label comes from. And I'm assuming, so, okay, uh, how much of that has been due to pandemic, everyone going locked down, every conference and event and meetup being canceled, and then people wanting to have a, you know, a virtual replacement? Um, because I think one of the interesting parts to me is that I know, I know that that's part of it. But there were already a whole bunch of other sort of, you know, webinar platforms and virtual event kind of platforms, conferencing platforms. Um, but it seems like Hopin just like scooped up like this huge, you know, market share comparatively. Um, uh, so I guess what I'm wondering is like, one, how much was the pandemic part of, you know, the growth trajectory? But also two, why do you think that Hopin was able to capitalize on it? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the pandemic, we say that it confirmed what we already knew to be true. It just accelerated it really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we saw, you know, for accessibility, sustainability, the ability to connect people in a remote world. You know, the world is becoming more and more remote, especially now. But even at that time, like remote work was, was increasing. Uh, so this was the tool that connected people on a platform in a way that felt like real life and made it made a webinar more human like a webinar you don't meet people you don't you don't like build relationships in a webinar you're just someone's talking and you're listening but you're not actually like networking or building a relationship Hopin allowed for that like that multi-room you know venue type experience where it's like choose your own adventure and like listen to an expert or build your network or like have a group chat explore booths you know, talk to vendors, get demos, uh, build followings, like build connections. So it kind of had the the reason why I think it scooped up, you know, the, the leadership position in virtual events. And um, when the when the pandemic hit is a timing, B, it, it the feature set and kind of what Hopin offered was different enough or innovative enough compared to like the entrenched players that it was. Uh, appealing to people who really valued like a, a high quality virtual experience. Um, and then there's the, the viral coefficient, the growth loop that's built into the product where, you know, if a hundred people attend a Hobbit event, three of them become event organizers themselves. So like that built into the product also helped with, with rapid growth. Is that, is that literally the, the viral coefficient? It's, it's three out of hundred ish. There was a time, um, I forget when it was, but uh, there was a time where it was, it was 3% when we calculated it. I don't know what it's at wow. today. Uh, I don't think it's that high anymore. Right. Okay. 
yeah, I mean, it's sort of like uh, destined to like keep going down as you one acquire new users because you're taking market share, but also uh, playing with bigger numbers, right? So um, that's okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not a bad thing necessarily. Um, yeah, man, what's uh, I, I don't know if you describe it as like a perfect storm. Uh, I agree. I think that Hopin is a a really 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 compelling product. I actually I remember now that you mentioned it. The, that first sort of like pitch uh, event that you put on um, and I remember kind of tuning in and thinking like oh this is like pretty slick and like I've never heard of it and uh, I think the funny part about it was you know back then it was like hop in dot two and um, I was sort of like oh it's a you know rinky dink little like new event conferencing platform like that's pretty cool but you know maybe I don't know they're going to have a hard time and I'm like who would have known that uh, one the pandemic would have accelerated a lot of that but really that would be so so dominant amongst all the other platforms out there uh, I think especially given you know you said that uh, Hobbit has this like unique kind of feature set um, and uh, you know, I was doing some research for a future Twitter thread on, um, on the history of the unique value proposition and if you really look back on like who created it and like what it was about it was less about like the pitch and it was more about designing a product that truly had a unique selling proposition, like no one else could sell in this thing that people wanted, right? It wasn't just like unique features that just like set you apart that maybe people care or don't care about, but it was a unique selling proposition of, hey, you want to put on online conferences, but you want it to feel like an online conference, not like a webinar. Here's our thing, and we can deliver on that for X, Y, and Z reasons, and no one else can. Like that is a unique selling proposition. Yeah, exactly. In the in the beginning, when we were when kind of the the world pivoted to virtual, and we were a small team, we were we were six people in January 2020, and then by the end of the year we were over 300 uh, in 2020, and the I like to say the marketing team. I was the sole marketing person until September 2020, and so during like peak pandemic time, it's I would say that engineers are your marketers, meaning like they're not, not actually the ones doing like copywriting and, and creating content, but it's features feature. Like the product itself is what sells. Like that's if, if, if I was a, a startup founder and I was like going to create a company instead of focusing so much on the marketing and, and the brand and, and kind of like what the, the vision is for, or like the message I would build a product that, uh, delights customers. And so like we listened to our early customers like, hey, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And then we developed this relation, this this reputation for shipping new features like every week. It's like, oh, you need that for your event? I'm like, oh, I, I have this huge event coming up, but I need this this feature uh, in order for it, to, for it to, and it's like, okay, we'll build it. Like we, we got you. And it's like, I think that kind of like product first uh, culture that we had uh, at the beginning really, really helped us move fast and, and be that, that kind of all in one solution for event planners. So it's play a little bit of a uh, devil's advocate. There's a lot of people out there who are building stuff and maybe even building like a superior product compared to alternatives, but they're not really doing any marketing uh, or selling kind of actively there. It's more of the sort of build it and they will come kind of approach of, you know, if I have the best product, then like word of mouth is going to carry me to the finish line, and I just need 
you know, for more people to find it, discover it, use it, love it, and then share it with other people. But that doesn't that doesn't happen uh, all the time. Like it's it's maybe more of an exceptional experience, like more of the, the exception than the rule. Um, or is it? What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. If it's if that isn't occurring, what what you just described, then I would I would wonder if there's a problem with the product. Because there should be, in any good product, a degree of kind of word of mouth happening where people are sharing it with, with their uh, networks. And marketing is kind of just greasing the machine to let that happen faster, better, more effectively, and like opening up those funnels and those channels and equipping sales, equipping customers to use the product better and communicate the product uh, to to their networks uh, kind of organically. I'd say that's that's like the most powerful form of marketing, arguably. Uh, but I, I do, to your point, I, I do realize that not all products have that built in. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to, again, like, um, is there some sort of public exposure um, to, the, to the product, you know, given, like, the nature of what it does? Also, is there, like, a competitive edge that it gives to someone because if, if there is then they might not actually want to share it even if there was like a, a viral component because they want to keep it to themselves so that um, they can you know milk it and sort of use it as an advantage against competitors um, but if you have something right, that, that, or if you design something uh, and you just choose to go down that route where you sort of want to check both those boxes of okay this isn't something that people are going to want to keep a secret and also we're going to build in some sort of like viral component where there's some public exposure and uh, it naturally spreads just by people using the product, then you don't have to do as much marketing, right? And you really, uh, it's a different game at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a, you know, I, I mentioned greasing the machine. Part of that's just telling customer stories. And I think we saw this with Hoppin. Uh, I remember Wall Street Journal hosted their first ever virtual health forum like right at, uh, it was in March, like right when it's like, hey, what, like, what's this COVID-19 thing? And like Fauci and like all the different uh, health leaders of the world like came together and that was hosted on Hopin. And uh, that was an incredible moment for the company, wow. at, at least in my, in my eyes, like being in the backstage, you know, and like doing speaker training, you know, for these folks who are coming on, on stage. And then once that happens, there was a domino effect, almost like a Me Too like a FOMO uh, effect with other media publications. Like we saw The Atlantic, we saw TechCrunch, we saw The Information, uh, CNBC, we saw other customers, uh, other media companies, especially like once once the other players in the industry started using Hopin, there was this domino effect. And I think that's, as, as far as B2B marketing, that's huge for providing that social proof and those case studies and use cases where it's like, hey, it's working for people like you. And being able to l- lean into the customer voice uh, was, was pretty pivotal for, for hopping in the early days. Yeah, were you, were you like giving out the products to sort of people that you knew had a large following or like a big, you know, could become a big case study or logo you could put on the site uh, you know, just for that benefit? Or was that something that just happened? You know, I think like, Obviously, that would be genius. Like, oh, let's just go get like someone with a ginormous audience from like the government to use this thing, and like everyone, you know, we'll have that social proof that it can kind of carry us a little bit later on. Um, uh, but it doesn't always, you know, 
work that way. You have to be like really intentional if you were to do that as a strategy. Yeah, yeah. So if you have if you have a flywheel like a growth flywheel built into your product, then yeah, give it away uh, as much as you can, especially to to good logos, um, because that's at the beginning when it's like an unproven product. I remember walking the floor at TechCrunch Disrupt uh, in 2019 with my laptop and being on the startup alley and kind of walking into different booths and just like opening my laptop be like hey could i show you how you could do this uh virtually like we're here physically but what if you could reach a global audience at the same time and you know like make make your booth hybrid and uh then i'd do just like crack it open and do a demo of hopping and uh that's actually how we closed the first ever enterprise deal at that happened. It was Dell, and I walked into their booth at TechCrunch Disrupt and just showed them. I was like, "Hey, you guys want to do a, a virtual event? Like, keep the conversation, the momentum going from this event. Uh, you know, with your email list of leads that you get, bring them to a to a virtual event and like keep this momentum alive with the the community you're building or the leads that you have." Um, so yeah, that ended up coming through. Uh, so that and and it's like, hey, have this for free, like pre pandemic. The pitch was always like, you've got a great event going on. Let's make a virtual version of it as well and extend your reach. Uh, and you can have it for free because we knew that if anyone used the product, there was a high likelihood someone in the audience attending would also use the product. Yeah, yeah, right. In that case, you really want to at least give it away for free for a while just so that you can like get that initial exposure and momentum. And then later on, you can worry about sort of monetization and access and you know who can do what on the platform and the way that you distribute it out but like in the beginning you just need you just need eyeballs yeah <laughs> like you just need people to know what you do and why it's useful and, and Corey, care. Corey, there's a question that we would ask internally when making strategic decisions you know on like the website or yeah like even features we would say are we optimizing for growth or revenue and like how you answer that question sorry for the siren uh, how you answer that question has a huge effect on the direction of, of the company. And in the early days, like, like for startups, it's all about growth, especially if you, have, if you have funding. It's kind of like no question we're optimizing for, for growth over revenue. But then at some point, that needs to switch to remain a viable business, to hit metrics, you know, if you're reporting to investors, so that there's a, a balance that emerges or a tension that emerges in strategy between growth and revenue optimization. I think that's a, a really, really key. Like you can't forget, especially if you're on that VC track. Like if you're, um, like you need to get that growth before the revenue. If you optimize revenue too early, then you're just gonna completely kill your growth. And I think that actually goes for a lot of like, you know, bootstrappers or people who, you know, aren't even necessarily on the VC track but have taken some funding. Um, like there's definitely like a, a balance there too. Like you can't just chase the money just for like proof of validation or you know, uh, profitability, like there, there's something we said about building momentum with just like user growth and adoption and usage, uh, so that later you can sort of parlay that into revenue later. Yeah, exactly. And we had the, you know, happen had the pandemic, um, happen and that was, you know, just, it accelerated the, the business and helped us focus on the product instead of marketing at that, at that time. Um, and there's a lot of just sales enablement. Uh, but now that, that thankfully the pandemic is, is fading, 
it's kind of like what's what's the pitch now like and we're having some some strategic discussions uh currently there's actually an event coming up that if you're curious for like what does the the world of events look like post pandemic we're doing an event on uh, july 7th called illuminate and it's a hybrid event we're uh, we're partnered with marriott uh, there's a physical component in la and then the virtual component um and to see the intersect between physical and the on-site world and the virtual world, I think there's going to be some pretty innovative, uh, this, this is my teaser, some innovative uh, experiences uh, for that event. Yeah, what, um, can you like give us a peek behind the curtains a little bit into how you're thinking about it? Because for me, like as soon as you said that, and I thought about this before, if, you know, if, if really a lot of the growth came from the pandemic and the, real, the pitch was centered around, you know, revive your your events your conferences by doing them online and then all of a sudden like people can do their events in person again does that sort of you know kill the need for hopping like obviously not but maybe can dampen it unless you position yourself as some sort of hybrid tool or enabler of you know uh you know bringing in-person events online and vice versa like having a more like uh conjoined experience being like online and in person uh, that's how I would think about it if I was if I was you or Johnny or you know that's the first thought that comes to mind. Yeah, totally. There's uh, it's it's I think about it as more as augmentation over over substitution. We're not trying to replace physical events. Uh, we're more just looking to augment them and increase the impact. Like what what's the goal of, of an event? It's to bring people together, connect, and learn. It's it's around connections and content. And if it's connections and content, uh, you can accomplish connections and content just as effectively, arguably more effectively online if you introduce that to your on-site event. Uh, that said, you can never replace like having a beer with someone, you know, during a happy hour at a at an event. But at the same time, like not everyone can fly can make it um, to a San Francisco, you know, tech conference, and that's where you start to fold in a virtual experience on top of your on-site event. And then there's some really interesting ways of matching people up, of translating on-site experiences into the virtual, uh, of just linking those together. And we, so we, we have some, uh, some features that will, I can't, I can't mention them now, um, but some features coming out over the summer um, that are going to paint more of what that picture, look, of what the hybrid uh, p- future of events looks like to the point of, and h- kind of how we're thinking about it. Um, I've been in some discussions where it's like this idea of hybrid event isn't going to be a thing in the future. It's going to be the default such that you don't like mention it, you know, cause it's just expected. It's like, Oh, you have a huge event. Ah, shoot. I can't make it. Um, but I'll, I'll swing by on the virtual version. Like I'll, I'll be on my phone. I'll catch it. I'll like connect with you at the event and you can show me around on your phone. But, but I, I'm not able to make the, the physical, I can't fly in, you know, so, but, but there's like going to be that optionality to the, the same experience, which is made up of content and connections at, at an event. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really, really smart. I'm excited to hear what the features are. Um, I'm also curious to, to hear from you on, I mean, in two years, you guys have gone from uh, like you and Johnny to 600 people, which is incredible. Um, how has what you've done changed over time? Yeah, I've, uh, I've, 
start. I'm the head, currently my title is head of marketing for emerging products. Uh, and so I help kind of like as an early stage incubator inside the company with new products, uh, and teams like that we're putting together and launching. Cause, um, as you can probably tell with the acquisitions that we've made that Hobbins no longer, you know, just, uh, strictly virtual events. Like there's, there's more, um, there's more happening, uh, at the, at the company. I, 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 I can't say too much, but there's, there's going to be some emerging products. And then that's where there's this like early stage marketing. Like how do I sit in between the product builders and visioneers and the global marketing team, and then connect the dots between brand marketing, product marketing, corporate marketing, and revenue marketing, and the the new products that were the new business units we're launching. So it's it's kind of entrepreneurial, you know, like early stage. It's still uh, entrepreneurial, but man, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's been uh, an incredible learning experience to go from like scrappy startup project to six hundred person you know, hundred, hundred million ARR company in less than two years and to, to grow, like to go through that, it's just been, and you know, like a once in a lifetime opportunity for me to like learn from the people that we've brought in and the team that that's been assembled, the executive team that we have, uh, just super smart people. Uh, and I've loved it. You know, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, early stage marketer now at like a company with over you know, 500 people. And, uh, I love it. It's I'm, I'm seeing like, how do you go from zero to big, uh, in less than two years? Like what are the systems, the meeting cadences, the docs, like super tactical, but like what's the big picture. And then the day to day that's needed to scale super, super fast. And, uh, I've learned a ton. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, it's been, it's been an exceptional experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine it's um, it's got to be surreal uh, to a certain degree. Um, well, I, I feel like I've been answering a whole bunch of questions, trying to satiate my own curiosity. Uh, but if you have questions for for me, I have to jump off in like a few minutes ish uh, for another meeting. But I also wanted to open up the floor to anyone else listening if they have a question for me or for Dave or any other topic that we've talked about. We've really kind of covered a lot of ground between. Um, uh, marketing and sort of like cutting edge of where the internet's going, medium, hop in, uh, live streaming, uh, days experience with party queues and different projects, being a multi-project entrepreneur. Um, but uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So if there any, any questions or anything else you want to chat about, uh, I'm, I'm game. I got I got to go to probably in six six minutes. But I do have a question for you, Corey. You're a mm-hmm. you're a prolific marketer, and I have a lot of respect for. Um, the way how you're writing and the your thought process and the, how you position products, I think it's. Uh, I've kind of been watching from the edge, and I'm super glad we got to connect to today. So my question is, how do you, how do you Twitter, in the sense like how do you how do you create threads? Like how how do you think about what you tweet? Um, because I think you do a great job of it. People are laughing at me. <laughs> Because, I mean, to be honest, like, I haven't cracked the nut. I don't know what works on Twitter. Like, I write on Medium, but there's, it's different. Uh, it's not the same. Yeah. But, but I think there's some people, in your, like, such as yourself, where it's like, yeah, you got it. Like, you, uh, you've you cracked the, the Twitter code. How do, 
what any advice or thoughts or like what's what have you seen that's worked or yeah i'm curious yeah well first of all i appreciate the kind words um second of all i feel like an imposter always and i definitely don't feel like i've like cracked the code although i was you know, obviously there's like been a little bit more success than like the average person um and uh so yeah i mean twitter's really interesting because you know what it makes me think of is that um when i uh when i was like 19 i had this conversation with a friend and sort of like when i realized that maybe i wanted to get go this whole entrepreneur thing eventually and so for several years after that like everything was kind of like a stepping stone to uh becoming an entrepreneur like being able to go out on my own work on projects bring things to life and um listen to a whole bunch of podcasts, a whole bunch of books. And one of the number one piece of advice that I always kind of clung to with a lot of things that I was hearing and absorbing was to just write down ideas that come to your head, like learn to build the muscle of spotting like opportunities for products and services and, and really businesses. Right. And so I started keeping this law, this notebook and Evernote at first, or just write down any crazy, random, wacky, stupid idea that would come to my head. Um, just for the fact or just for the to build that muscle of rewarding myself for coming up with the idea in the first place, being able to reference it later, and then um, you know actually capturing the idea, like fleshing it out a little bit and, and thinking it through. Um, and obviously I don't have a hop-in story like yourself to really like, you know, be able to showcase as like, look, this is the product of like all the years of capturing stupid ideas. But I think it's actually a similar kind of process and method for, for something like Twitter. Or honestly, really, well, okay, maybe not anything, maybe not any platform, because what Twitter really rewards is like doing things in public. It's like thinking in public, learning in public, building in public, just like sharing thoughts. Um, because like the within the product itself, you really think about it, like the people's complaint about Twitter is that it's noisy. Like it's just like this really quick, constant stream of tweets and information and uh and content but that's actually the advantage too because it gives you a lot of at bats right it gives you a lot of shots uh to, to hit sort of the moonshot like the thing that really takes off um and especially when you can kind of like build some momentum so early on when i first started using twitter uh it was really just about like getting my thoughts out of my head like just anything that come to mind about what i was learning at work around marketing or what i was listening to what i was reading i would just tweet about it i would just ask a question i would just get it out right and so like one two i don't know three times a day just like getting the habit of putting my thoughts onto into my phone into twitter and clicking publish and building that muscle um i think what happens is over time there's sort of like this gravity that that's created where the things that you talk about the things you put out like you start to naturally attract you know like-minded people and then maybe they're sort of trained and rewarded for engaging with you because you engage back or they learn sort of what to expect when they follow you. Um, and then it gets to like the, the kind of like tactical, you know, strategic stuff around like, Hey, like how does Twitter really work? How do you, you know, get people to follow you on Twitter? And there's like basics around, you know, setting up your Twitter profile. Like why should people uh, follow you? What is the content they can expect? Like being really consistent there, you know, your, your headshot, your bio, your, you know, your pinned tweet even, uh, any sort of social proof that you have, you know, where you're linking out to. And then it's like, okay, how do we grow? How do we get in front of more people? Honestly, like the easiest and best way is through threads because just think about how you discover new people to follow. Like it's probably through something that got retweeted by someone else. And guess what? People really love to retweet threads because it's like a big, 
comprehensive, insightful uh, collection of information. Um, yeah, I was so, gonna I was gonna ask you about threads and whether like you would recommend that versus like one-off tweets, like versus threads, and like how do you how do you think about a thread versus a tweet? Because like the 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 alternative to a thread is like link out to your blog or like link out to your website, but how do you choose like why thread it instead of link out? Um, it's just like, how are you going to get it in front of more people? Uh, like people just don't share things that are like linked out to you very much. Also, I think that algorithmically it's a little bit, um, punished. Like it's just not optimized for sharing links that like people want. Twitter wants to keep people on Twitter, right? So just like, play the game that Twitter says, like, here are the rules for the game, here's what we reward, here's what we punish, follow those rules. And um, the threads keeping people on Twitter really helps. You can also link out to whatever you wrote um, at the beginning or the end of a thread. Uh, so it's not like really like an either mm. or, you know, they're not mutually exclusive ideas. But um, I think that what threads, the, the real advantage of threads is that uh, one, is just what people share again, but two, um, it's, it's usually like a combination of, whole, of a whole bunch of proven, interesting ideas. So if you have like a bunch of single tweets, singular tweets around a certain topic, you start to get this feedback loop of like what people engage with, what's interesting, what you should write more about. And then a thread is like the culmination of everything you've learned through like singular kind of one-off tweets. Yeah. You combine those into a thread and now you have like, you know, one plus one equals 11 because all these interesting tweets together that you've already proven are interesting and have that positive feedback loop are now all together and it's um it's like 10 times more valuable than they would be as standalone tweets um so i, I don't think that threads are like the end all be all but especially right now and like just if you think about the way that twitter works it's sort of i mean it's an easier route to go for sure like that's that's one of the more proven sort of ways to do it i know uh, i know we got to go but i did i was listening to um what was it jason jason kalanakis was interviewing a product marketer at at twitter uh, and they're releasing Twitter Blue soon, like the paid yeah, subscription yeah. of Twitter. And I don't know if, if you've read, read about this, but one of the features they mentioned that was coming was um, the ability to share bookmarks, where it's like you can basically create an index of your bookmarks and then eventually like have them searchable and you know like categorize your book bookmarks and then share those out with your your followers. So it's almost like another form of curation uh but then only blue members would be able to do that huh. yeah that's definitely going to be a, another arbitrage opportunity where everyone's going to jump on it and it's going to be like this really outsized like oh who's like curating the best bookmarks and like oh go follow this person and like they're just going to like explode uh so i'm going to have to keep that one in mind i think it's really interesting i'm, I'm excited about twitter to be honest i i'm going to have a user of the products it's the only social network that i use um, I, I like the company. I think they've been vastly sort of undervalued, undermonetized, a little bit mismanaged maybe in the, in the, in the past. But like <laughs> the future is promising, and, um, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, I'm with you. I think we we both have to go. Conscious of time, I gotta I gotta hop. But this has been yeah, fantastic, man, Corey. Uh, super really great to chat with you. Absolutely, man. Yeah, nice to uh, nice to finally chat on. Uh, well, not exactly face to face. But uh, voice to voice, and um, if people have follow up questions, you can follow and DM either of us. Uh, but Dave also just wanted to say thanks to you; it's been really fun, and uh, maybe we can do something similar again in the future. Hundred percent. Thank you, Corey. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right. Later, everyone. Thanks for joining.
Thanks again to Dave for the chat. Make sure to check out Hopin if you're running events. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank Dave for sharing everything today. Let him know what you thought. You can add, you can DM him, whatever it is. Hopefully you got some good takeaways. I know I did, especially, I mean, really just the big one was it was fascinating to hear more about the behind the scenes of Hopin's rapid growth, what's that, what that's like, what's powering it, and what they're doing going forward. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.